over time, what you realize is that everything in life is not about acquisition of stuff or acquiring credentials. It's about how you connect to other people. I think it, one of the vulnerabilities in, in the academic world is that we don't uh, really uh, support boldness. We really want people to fit within niches. Having better regulation of the heart through the vagus and better uh, ability to remove that vagal inhibition and then to immediately recover that uh, promotes a lot of positive attributes of not only physical performance, but it's all about out-breath. So, so I would actually give people a, a, a subjective test and ask whether they can deal with stillness. Is it frightening to them or is it something they want? Yeah. Ryan Muncie is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncie is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncie's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic. Ryan Muncie is my go-to guy. Ryan Muncie is he's the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Ryan Muncie's an innovator. Dr. Porges, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for spending some time with us and being here today. For the last few episodes, we've been really shortening the, uh, the intros for our listeners. So for, for your, what I call the Twitter intro, the 140 characters or less, you are the man who discovered HRV in the 60s, uh, the creator of polyvagal theory and so much more. What would you wanna to add to that intro? Well, I, the only way I would add to it is that what I used to say is people, when they would introduce me, would start going through all these things. I actually said, I'd much rather you said I was a nice guy and let's get on with it. <laughs> uh, because over time, what you realize is that everything in life is not about acquisition of stuff or acquiring credentials. It's about how you connect to other people. And even the research of polyvagal theory is about co-regulation and how we use others to optimize how we are. I don't mean exploitation, but through the dyadic interaction with others. So that's who I am. Well, and that's, that's a beautiful kind of segue right into vagal tone and, and how community and, and tribal things play into that. But let's pause that for a second. I, I want to start with HRV. Uh, yeah. I, I, you've told the story before, and I love the way you tell it. Talk to us about you know how you discovered it, and and what some of your colleagues had to say when you first brought it to oh. people's attention. Well, again, you know this this is a story of of several decades, and we start revisiting what it was in the middle 1960s when people were really looking at heart rate and the theoretical models within science about linking heart rate to psychological phenomena. Was this heart rate go up or does it go down? So people were obsessed with a theoretical model that said that if you increased your heart rate, you were blocking sensory information. And if you decreased it, you're in a sense inviting and attending. It had no neural model to it. It had no understanding of the mechanism. And I was doing research on my master's thesis. This is now uh, 1967, and this is uh, a time when people didn't have computers. Well, there were computers, but they were not in the laboratory. They were much too expensive. Uh, and so people were literally hand-scoring their data. And the major innovation that we had in the laboratory was that we had something called a tachometer. So rather than looking at ECG, this was actually displaying inflections of increases and decreasing. So it was like a tachometer on a car. 
it was telling you the heart rate. So we were getting a beat-to-beat -beat measure of heart rate. And I was studying, uh, uh, my experiment was to look at different attributes or different aspects of attention. I was very interested in mental effort. And I started to notice that when people started to attend or process information, heart rate stabilized. And that's, that was the birth of uh, looking at heart rate variability as a dependent variable, as an indicator of mental effort. But there was something else that I observed also, and this was really what got me very ex even more excited. I noticed that there were individual differences in people's baseline uh, heart rate variability. And those that had more heart rate variability, they were the ones who had faster reaction times. So those were the ones that appeared to be more resilient. And that actually started that whole, that was a segue into people studying individual differences in heart rate variability. But I left one other point out, is when we saw heart rate variability stabilizing, we started asking serious questions like, is this uh, body movement changes? Is this changes in breathing? So we then had to buy more equipment. So this is, again, a different world. So we then had to buy a device to measure respiration, and that was with a strain gauge around the chest. And we could see that breathing did change parameters of uh, heart rate variability, but it wasn't causal. So based upon, even though in general you have a, a reduction of breathing amplitude when people quiet down and pay attention, it was not solely driving, it was not a deterministic model. And this, if we were to take this and unpack it into the 21st century, we'd say, well, uh, from training models, we can talk about breathing exercises, and breathing exercises can start to recruit some of these mechanisms. But the main point I want to make is that going back to the 60s, people were not even talking about neural mechanisms. Everything was phenomenological. What did you observe? And my research trajectory was, okay, we can see these things, but what are the, what are the mechanisms mediating that? Because if you understand the mechanisms, you have opportunities to optimize, and now we're into your world. Absolutely. And that's why I find all of this so fascinating. I think our listeners will as well. So one of the things that you said in previous interviews is that, you know, when you first brought this out uh, to your oh. colleagues' attention, that they said, they, they said you were just a bad scientist. Oh, oh. The variability. I, I, I will tell you that the person who said this to me was the National Academy of Science person. And uh, she was uh, pretty hostile. And she said, you know, the heart just beats, and it only changes its beat when it reacts to stimuli in the world. So she assumed, and the metaphor I used is the heart was floating in a visceral sea. There are absolutely no nerves uh, that are relevant because it's uh, you have a pacemaker and your heart's beating constantly, and you get changes when your body is doing something. It was no understanding of a homeostatic process that was being reflected in the heart rate patterns or the beat to be patterns which we call heart rate variability yeah she said yeah steve the reason you have heart rate variability in your research is just not a very good scientist <laughs> and uh i mean even at the point i was in my 20s so i was a very young faculty member i was an assistant professor at 25 and by the time i was 27 or 28 when she started to harass you know harass me on these things I was, uh, I was, let me use the term, bold enough to think that she was the one that needed to uh, start understanding what was going on because I knew what, what I saw and I knew it wasn't, uh, it was real. And this, the second pushback was not merely that you're a bad scientist. Uh, 
because the next thing I was trying to say is that if you have high heart rate variability, the heart rate reactions you get are going to be different than if you have low heart rate variability. And then the pushback on that was, how can you use heart rate to predict heart rate? <laughs> that, that, so the, there was no conceptualization of what heart rate variability was. And there's a next stage in this. And this was, uh, again, when you start looking at beat to beat heart rate, you start seeing patterns. And I was, uh, let's say, naive to other areas of mathematics and statistics. And so I started to develop my own methodology of describing periodicities and heart rate and didn't realize I was starting to get into Fourier analysis. I was making it up. <laughs> and, and I had, being in a university, having good fortune of being on a dissertation committee where someone was studying rhythms in EEG mm-hmm. and a mathematician was describing uh, a analysis called spectral analysis. And that mathematician became my best friend uh, while I was at the University of Illinois in Champaign in the 70s and early 80s. So, I mean, we have fortuitous opportunities when we don't know things to see techniques and knowledge. And I think one of the pitfalls is that people always think that they have to discover and understand everything. It has to come from them. And I think the, the good scientist knows to, to learn from others. Uh, that's that's well said. So, what were some of the turning points that started, um, you know, opening other people's minds to this, and and you know, starting to instead of looking at it and saying, "Wow, this is bad science or bad data," you know, that maybe there is something here. Oh, um, I think a lot. This is actually an issue of personality and persistence, and what I often call boldness. Now, <laughs> I think. One of the vulnerabilities in in the academic world is that we don't uh, really uh, support boldness. We really want people to fit within niches. And boldness is really kind of the fun part. It's like if you were, okay, so I'm talking to you, and and obviously the people who are watching love competition. Now, uh, this goes back to who I am and who I was when I transitioned into an academic. Um, I had been a sprinter. I had actually a track scholarship to college to run, even though I didn't run. And I was a musician. I was a clarinetist. And uh, I was a second seat in the Allstate Band in New Jersey. So I was good. And in fact, when I went to college, uh, I avoided the track scholarship by um, being the concert master of the wind ensemble because I had to do an extracurricular event. But the point of both of those is that they're both – tasks that have a metric of success so you know you if you're a sprinter someone holds a watch up and you know how good you are that's it mm-hmm. you can have really crappy style but if you get across the line fast you're fast and with music it's a different type of evaluation it's a consensus evaluation so you know that you're good because everyone says you're good because they know what the quality of music should sound like and how it should be played. So you have judgment or you have their objective uh, uh, metrics. But when you get into academics, you get a sloshing bit. It's, it's very mixed because a lot has to do with a colleague's consensus and really uh, concern for violation of expectancy. So in a sense, people get scared. Uh, so I brought into academics my personality, and my personality was um, there are metrics that you learn. So what I used, I used two things as my my grounding points. 
I used the history of science. So I went back into uh, studying the underlying mechanisms of the fibers that created heart rate variability. So I, I moved it out of phenomenological uh, to a neural explanation. Uh, and then I also went into mathematics and statistics to revise and improve the ability to uh, uh, describe what I had observed. And my colleagues, so I, in a sense, I, I bypassed them by becoming uh, expert in other disciplines. And so the language that I could use was neurophysiology. And the language that I could also use was mathematics and statistics. So you, when you have that toolkit, when you're amassing a toolkit, um, it, it's no longer someone saying it's wrong. So whenever someone says something that is wrong, I say, well, uh, Give me your, your explanation. You have to provide me with another plausible explanation because you can't just say something's wrong. You can't say it's controversial. I'm not stupid and I'm not insecure. And in the academic world, people are frightened that someone will say they're wrong or that what they're doing is controversial. My point is really go right at them and say, you, you have to prove to me that you have a better way of explaining this. And I'm, I'm very willing to listen because the only way that science moves ahead is through the feedback. And science is not uh, perfect. It needs the it, It's a feedback loop where we learn from observation to refine our understandings. Yeah, that's, that's all just really, really great. Um, so question for you then on HRV, and this is just yeah. like fast forward to today. Um, I love the data. And I think everybody listening is aware of how important and how impactful having that data is for ourselves. Do you have a favorite way to quantify HRV on a daily basis? Because everything that I've tried is frustrating and clumsy and awkward. Okay. The, the issue is we're, HRV became part of the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. and, and the problem is that the methods that are easily obtainable through your apps and on you know, all these different methodologies uh, tend to lack certain statistical, uh, uh, violate statistical assumptions. So that in general, high is good, but high can be created through artifact as well as through neural mechanisms. And heart rate variability is a composite measure, meaning that it reflects multiple neural influences and not in the simplistic way that it is in much of the literature. So what you have is an overlay of the public consciousness that kind of uh, stopped the progression of understanding that was going on, let's say, in the late 80s. So science was put behind, and you have almost a marketing model. Hmm. So, so what I'm really saying is there's certain features in heart rate variability that are extraordinarily sensitive and accurate indicators of neurophysiological state. And the component that I focus on is called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And the reason that's so important is that if we go back 100 years and ask, the, uh, what did the, how did the physiologists identify uh, vagal influences uh, on the heart, cardioinhibitory influences? Well, when they did their surgeries, they found the fibers that had a respiratory rhythm. Now, where are those fibers going? They're going to the pacemaker, the sinoatrial node. And if they have a respiratory rhythm of inhibition on the, res on the sinoatrial node, you'll see a sinusoidal pattern in your heart rate. 
but that's not the only patterns you see in your heart rate. And those other patterns are coming through neurochemical and other neural influences. And so overall heart rate variability um, is a generalized measure, but if we partition it to study that respiratory component, we finally have an extremely sensitive uh, biomarker that, in, that indexes a specific neural process. So when I read, and, and that's just the start, but if we go beyond that, we start saying you get that waveform, you can really screw up by the way you quantify it because of uh, how statistics work. And so there, there are ways in which uh, uh, you have to, in a sense, transform your values to make sure that the, uh, the process occurs uh, rep is a good representation. The example I would make is that let's assume that you, or this is not who you are, let's say you have low RSA, but you can trick the machine into thinking you have high RSA by having a relatively rapid transitory increase in heart rate that will come back down because the machine will be able to distinguish that transitory pattern from a breathing pattern. And if you don't quantify the data correctly, that large excursion will mask the low amplitude RSA, the respiratory sinus arrhythmia that you really have. So you have to develop a metric that doesn't it, uh, emphasize the, in a sense, the artifact. So, I mean, this is a little obtuse to talk about. Right. So, I mean, I'm not trying to box you into to a recommendation, but it sounds like you're saying something that is monitoring on like a 24-hour cycle as opposed to, you know, sticking something on for an instant reading is, is oh, maybe a better way? You can, you can actually get relatively short readings that are accurate of the physiology at that point in time. So you just brought up another important uh, statement that people get confused when we use terms like biomarkers. They want to get into something like a blood test or a genetic test that they think is a stable phenomenon. The issue when we get into a heart rate variability, which we're really using to get indices of the vagal regulation of the heart, that's a dynamic process mm -hmm. that is mapping into the contextual demands that your body's in. So if you're uh, doing uh, any type of physical exertion to optimize the, uh, that's a good word, right? To optimize uh, the physical uh, output you take off the vagal inhibition. You take the vagal break off. Mm. Now, if you monitor a person during that state, you'd say, ah, oh, they have very low vagal regulation of the heart. But the context is telling you something. The important part of that situation is not that they have low during the excursion, the uh, exercise, but mm. that they recover. Mm -hmm. And that you can track over time. So uh, the apps have... In my initial response to many of these techniques was being the, the restricted uh, scientist or the structured scientist was not very good. But as an applicator, I started to back off and say, well, you know, it's giving people some indicator of their physiological state and they're not publishing papers. They're trying to map into how their system is changing. Right. So, so in general, most of these apps and things are giving you a reasonable indicator uh, of 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 that neural regulation. So, if your if your heart rate is constant, doesn't change more than a few milliseconds every beat, that's not very good. Um, but if it changes, you know, 
let's say, over a breath cycle, 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 milliseconds, that's better. And when you're younger, it can change a couple hundred milliseconds. And these all represent the dynamic uh, regulation of the vagal process. The problem really is that heart rate variability in many of the algorithms compresses not really these rhythmic homeostatic processes, which is what we want to measure, but it confounds it with transitory shifts that can be due to an arrhythmia or due to a massive motor jolt. You know, if I stand up, my heart rate's going to go up immediately and then it's going to come back down. Yeah, those are all really good points. And I think, uh, I think that's something that, that a lot of the general population does miss, you know, when, when we're looking at that data. Let's walk us through, you know, how you went from, you know, sort of the, the HRV and, and you know, that kind of data to polyvagal theory. How did that uh, okay. light bulb moment happen for you? Well, what happened was, you know, and I actually described this in some, some chapter I wrote recently where I talk about uh, three, three phases of science for an academic. One is an empirical phase, and that's how you get tenure. Okay, so now you become an you basically describe, describe, describe. But the second part, which is how you become a full professor in some research-oriented institutions, is really to focus on the mechanism, the mechanisms underlying what you observe, and that's really the in terms of heart rate patterns became the neurophysiology. The third phase of a career is the establishment and generalization of theory. So how does your work now translate to the rest of the world? And in this chapter, I basically make the statement that uh, it, it, you do this at the end of the career or it's career ending. So, so if you build theory uh, too early and try to sell theory, for instance, talk about theory, which has generalizability, you won't have traction. Because the science asks, where, where are the observables and what are the mechanisms? So there's really, in a sense, a logistical path. It's very logic, logical. It goes from empir empiricism to mechanism. And then if you, have, if you can use that to create a model, you have generalizability. And so as you sit there and I sit here and we talk about heart rate variability, we're talking about the generalizability of heart rate variability in the real world. Right. And I'm saying the, uh, what happened in terms of the apps and the application in the world is it went from the phenomenal, it's phenomenological to application. Mm -hmm. And that if, if, you're, if there's a recursive understanding of mechanism, you refine the measure to extract the component of the mechanism that you theoretically think will be related to what you're doing. And so in the world of optimal performance, having better regulation of the heart through the vagus and better uh, ability to remove that vagal inhibition and then to immediately recover that uh, promotes a lot of positive attributes of not only physical performance, but how the physical performance uh, is overlaid or overlays into our social interactions with others. So that if you are able to ex basically get tremendous uh, metabolic output by removing the vagal inhibition, you can lift great things and move things. But if you don't recover, your social behavior is going to be for, it's not going to be good. You'll be, in a sense, biased to be aggressive to people, which mm -hmm. happens in a lot of, you know, 
people who over exercise or work out or take mm-hmm. supplements that don't that affects their hormonal balance mm-hmm. their body gets into a state of mobilization which distorts their perception of the world this is how polyvagal theories start to <laughs> expand because of course it's going to distort it because if you're in a state of fight flight your nervous system is going to support that and you're going to see neutral inputs as if they're threatening and you 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 probably have to live through some of those experiences oh absolutely i mean one of the early in my lifting career i used to love um methods of what i call turning off the governor where you could you could over over amplify or activate your nervous system and use that to you know either jump farther or lift heavier weights or get extra reps and it would leave me in that state of you know over excitability for my nervous system and I would sort of be aggressive the rest yeah. of the day. And then the next day, you sort of feel like you're in quicksand because your nervous system is just shot. Well, it's not shot. It's recovering. Right. It's going through these homeostatic feedback loops and saying you, you need to reduce the metabolic output because you've got a little bit of catabolic there. You need to mm-hmm. the system to, to recover. And that's, you know, your, your self-observations are really showing, telling you what happened or the linkage between autonomic state, physiological state, and our interaction in the world. Yeah. So, okay. For, for let's let's assume that some of our listeners may not know polyvagal theory. Des- describe that or, or explain it. You know, kind of at the highest level, and then let's unpack <laughs> some stuff. Well, well, this this is almost an inside joke because whenever people ask me that, I really ask them how much time do they have. Uh, it because basically polyvagal theory is telling uh tells us that we had a evolutionary history that we need to respect and that evolutionary history changed our autonomic nervous system so as mammals transitioned from primitive ex- the old primitive extinct uh reptiles they had to develop a way of shutting down defenses because mammals are uh, social. They need to nurture. They need to deal with their young. And when babies are born, when they're mammals, they have to be taken care of. With reptiles, they take care of themselves. So everything with the mammalian nervous system was about turning off defenses to enable co-regulation. Psychologically, we talk about trust, love, connectedness, but it's really saying our bodies need to interact with another to reach a homeostatic state, okay, that being given. So what we have in our nervous system is really embedded in it is the evolution of our autonomic nervous system. And polyvagal theory emphasizes those points and provides the hierarchy of how it works. So we have an ancient shutting down system, which ancient vertebrates had, not enough oxygen, not enough food, just reduce metabolic demands. Okay, it go into uh, hybrid. It's not even hibernation. It's really more like looking inanimate, like you're dead, because you're not moving. You don't need to use metabolic activity. Then that's ancient vertebrates. Then we got another system on top of that, which was a spinal sympathetic nervous system, and that enabled mobilization to functionally inhibit this older shutting down system. So in the world that we're talking to, you have probably a lot of people do high-risk behaviors. And then you start asking them, what are they doing if they don't do that? They feel like your term was going into quicksand. Mm -hmm. So they feel like they're not alive or they're dying unless they move. Often that history, trajectory, historical trajectory, is linked to 
traumas. It could be medical traumas. They could be a bullying or other forms of trauma. But this is where polyvagal theory has led people because it gave them a way of explaining those early shutdown experiences. So the sympathetics basically inhibit this shutting down. But as mammals evolved, they got a newer vagal system. So the, the old shutdown system was, was an old vagus, was a, it's vagal, and we still have it. So when we shut down or if we're frightened, uh, we basically might defecate or pass out. Mm-hmm. So we use terms like scared shitless. Right. Or, you know, and those are really saying, yeah, even in our culture, this occurs. Yeah, and I mean, that's, I'm, I'm glad you said that because that's actually one that I've, I've written about previously is, you know, actually using that terminology. And there's a reason that, that we say that. Yeah, that's right. It, it's really, term. it's beautiful that we know in our body that this shutting down this inanimate reaction is linked to our digestive system because it is vagal. We wouldn't say, hey, uh, uh, you know, you know I've, I've scared shitless. We would, you know, we'd say that under life threat, our old vagal system tries to conserve our resources and defecates. So why does it do that? Well, we go back to the reptiles. And if a reptile has to be inanimate or go underwater for a few hours, uh, it reduces its metabolic demands. Mm -hmm. So it gets rid of the food in its gut because digestion is metabolically costly. Mm -hmm. So we see this being lived through in our own behaviors. Mm -hmm. Life threat, immobilization, reduce metabolic demands. Now, that's the oldest system. The next system was this mobilization. But mammals have a newer vagal circuit which functions like a choreographer and contains those other vagal circuits and sympathetic and the other vagal circuit to support homeostasis. So we need sympathetic activation and we need the other vagus, especially to regulate our subdiaphragmatic organs. So this newer vagus is linked to the muscles of the face and head, into voice, into breath, and we see all those things working, co-regulation, looking at people, listening to them, calming. And the underlying point, and this is for your your exercise uh, audience, the people who exercise, is that when we have a healthy new mammalian vagus, and this is what most people talk about when they mean vagal tone, you have a governor, and that was the word you used earlier, mm-hmm. a governor on your sinoatrial node. So that we use uh, the idea that if our basal heart rate is low, we're in good shape. What that tells us is really that you have a tonic inhibition of the sinoatrial node by this newer vagus. That's what it's telling you. So, And that says that really that inhibit, inhibitory aspect of that newer vagus can be instantaneously removed. But if you're a weightlifter and you're doing jerks, you know that. If you're a sprinter, you know that. Mm-hmm. That the, the efficiency of removing that break is the gift of that new mammalian vagus. Because they, uh, mammals evolved to mobilize immediately, but also to calm down immediately. Mm-hmm. That's the gift of that newer vagus. And, and that's actually something that I have written down as a talking point is a lot of the problems that we run into in today's world is, is the dysfunction of being able to move back and forth to, and especially yeah. to recover immediately. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that is true i think that i mean that gets generalized into politics and culture and the world we're living in and that is as long as we can't move back we can't 
share an experience with another person. We are always in a defensive mode. So the ability to come back, to get that governor back on, not only calms our body activity, but it biases our ability to detect features in others. Mm -hmm. So if we have that break removed, our perception, this is the term, I shouldn't even use the word perception. I like to use the word neuroception because it's not a conscious awareness. Right. And, and I do little uh, exercises in, my, in the workshops that I give where I have people breathe differently. Mm -hmm. And I have them look at each other and ask questions about uh, how they perceive the other person, how the person perceives them. And the, if you take longer inhalations relative to exhalations, you see the other person as evaluative, critical. And if you take longer exhalations, slower out-breaths, you see the other person as interesting, like to get to know that person, and benevolent. One person used the term saying the guide shifted from being a bruiser to being a Buddha. So it was this whole transition. And this actually, let me flip this back to uh, perhaps even people who are swimmers or musicians, mm -hmm. because they are wind instrument musicians. It's all about outbreath. So if you know, so if you're a singer, a wind instrument player, or a swimmer, what are you doing? You're taking very rapid inhalations and slow exhalations. And that's probably why a lot of people find swimming relaxing. They certainly find playing musical instruments relaxing and uh, engaging. Hmm. That's all really good stuff. I'm just making a note of that, that you know, that's potentially one reason that swimming is such a good recovery exercise. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, we forget that the ability to extend the duration of exhalations, which is a strange, you know, I'm being very objective in it, uh, is a calming exercise. Um, mm -hmm. And that a lot of people don't like to be in touch with their body or in touch with others. Mm -hmm. And so if you watch and you have this uh, obvious experience of interviewing mm -hmm. people, you can literally see how they breathe by the duration of their phrases. Yeah. And even though we're not timing the phrases, our body is reacting to those durations. So people who do very short breaths, how do you feel when you hear that? You get your body tenses up with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk, uh, I guess, was keeping on polyvagal theory for, for a minute. Um, Back to your one of the points you made in the beginning with, you know, science requiring sort of people challenging and, and feedback to, to advance it. There have been uh, at least one paper that I've come across that sort of challenges the applicability of polyvagal theory in, in mammals. Well, there, the issue when you read that paper, um, go very careful. Go, and, and again, contrasted, uh, that paper that you're referring to actually uh, does a, a criticism without providing specific points and provides an alternative theory, which is actually a paraphrase of the original theory of polyvagal theory. So the, the part of all that dialogue is, yeah, tell me how I can change the, uh, the dialogue. How can I change it to, or how can I modify the theory to be more inclusive, more understanding? And what I've learned over time is that criticisms of polyvagal theory are not really about the polyvagal theory. They're about misunderstanding phylogeny, evolution, 
uh, that same author of that single paper uh, or uh, also try to argue that since uh, snakes also have some type of respiratory rhythm in their heart rate, mm -hmm. uh, it means polyvagal theory is wrong. It doesn't because even in the papers where they argue that, let me give you two points, they don't pr prove a, a, it's basically for each heartbeat you get a breath, which is very different than what you see in, in mammals. And the second thing is snakes happen to be modern reptiles, and that's not part of the polyvagal theory. The polyvagal theory is about the transition mm -hmm. from ancient extinct reptiles to mammals, the adaptive function. So if you don't understand the evolutionary question, then you can't get at it. If you don't understand the mathematics to measure the respiratory heart rate relationship, you can't really criticize it. You have to, in a sense, polyvagal theory, it merges so many different uh, disciplines mm -hmm. at a relatively high level that you have to incorporate them. So the, the other uh, interesting part that I've found people uh, who don't understand neuroanatomy at all, so part of what polyvagal theory has led to is a very interesting evolutionary phenomenon in mammals, and that is the linkage in the brainstem between the neural regulation of the striated muscles of the face and head and the heart through that newer vagus. Now, there's nothing to argue about that point. That's the way it is. The theory just says that this is how we express uh, this is related to clinical information. So it would mean that if you have people with uh, flat facial affect, in the turning off of the social engagement system to be a manifestation in the neuroregulation of the heart. And there is. That's what a lot of research has with mental health. So that's how, what the theory is. And that's not what these criticisms are. These criticisms are not of theory. They're saying that the assumptions may not be correct. So I want to know if the assumptions are correct, what's the real statement? And the real statements tend not to be related at all to what I've been saying. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, I'm, I'm floating around listening, actually, so I've been watching this for now 20 years, and there are now several thousand publications, and in general, we'd say, let's say 99% of those publications are saying the theory is useful as an explanatory tool for what they observe. Right. And, and that's what theory is for, and if theory doesn't explain your data, provide me with a plausible alternative. Don't tell me it's wrong. Don't tell me it's controversial. Give me an explanation. Yeah, and speaking of just this this multitude of, of papers and, and research, you know, built on all this. I mean, there has to be some. I, I know you, I know what you said in the beginning of the interview, but there has to be some part of you when you see all of these studies on, you know, does does yoga improve HRV or does does yeah. meditation improve HRV? You see all of these studies looking at habits or practices that, that could potentially elevate HRV or improve vagal tone. Does a little bit of you smile and, you know, knowing that you discovered HRV, that all of this is built on something that you found? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what makes me feel more authentic. And this is really what we're talking about. It's talking about the sense of uh, self-validation or feeling as an authentic human being. Uh, the world that makes me really smile 
is the world in the, of clinical phenomena in terms of people's life and health. So that when polyvagal theory, when people uh, see the theory as providing an explanation of their life experiences, it's like people who have experienced life threat trauma, whose lives have been totally changed. Mm -hmm. One of the transformative effects of the theory has been to provide them with an explanation of their experiences. Mm -hmm. And what the theory provides also is the notion that top-down regulation of brainstem function is as powerful as bottom-up. So the trauma is a bottom-up, but when people shift their personal narrative, it's a top-down, and that changes the neuroregulation of the heart. So what the theory does is it provides this tremendous optimistic plasticity of how we can adapt to complex situations. So yeah, I do smile. Okay. All right. Basically, everything you said there is like the that's the the concept for the book that I'm writing is, is yeah. how, how do we get people not from a trauma situation, but just normal people in an everyday situation to shift from that bottom up to that top down, yeah. optimistic and and you know be able to go on and do what they want to do. For our listeners, because you mentioned trauma situations and and polyvagal theory being an explainer for, for that experience. Can you give an example? Because I think I've heard you talk about maybe like first responders at 9-11. Well, the, um, the, simple, the simplest and most, uh, uh, I would say, potent example was I got an email a couple of years ago from a woman who said that she was 69 years old. And when she was 18, she was uh, raped and almost strangled to death. And she said that when she told this to her daughter, her daughter said to, was really saying, why didn't you fight? Why didn't you run? Why didn't you do something? Instead, she immobilized. And she said that when she read the theory, she started to cry and felt totally vindicated. Mm -hmm. And this is a common story because we don't, uh, because before polyvagal theory, everyone thought that our reactions to uh, challenges or, or threat was mobilization. But when you deal in the world of trauma, or you deal in a world of restraint, of power differentials, of the inability to utilize fight or flight or mobilization strategies to survive. So the body goes into this very ancient uh, reaction. But the problem with going into it is that even though we evolved to go into mobilization and then social engage, we didn't really have a good transition out of becoming inadequate and disappearing. Mm -hmm. And so you find out in, even in the world of even some of your listeners, they will have issues of trauma histories, uh, dissociative states, uh, and they come from our body's uh, ability. And this is actually a wonderful ability to try to adapt to life threat and polyvagal theory shifts it from victim and to not just survivor, but shifts it from victim to heroic adaptation. Mm -hmm. And once we start respecting our body's adaptive functions, truly respecting it, we don't get pissed off at what our body did, literally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in the sense, the people who have gone through these trauma experiences are often saying, I'm so angry at my body because this is not what I wanted. And the issue is, Think again. The body did something miraculous. You did, you're still here. You're alive. And your body tried to do the best thing for you without you trying to uh, take control over it. Right, right. Uh, so let's talk about some, some things that listeners can implement. Um, you know, before we hit record, you mentioned things like music and, mm -hmm. and dance, breathing. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about some of those things and, you know, why they work. 
Well, they they work because they're functionally neural exercises. And again, what uh, comes in with polyvagal theory is that we can once we identify the system, the mechanism, then we can intervene in ways to optimize those mechanisms. So the mechanism that we're talking about is the turning on and off of the vagus on the sinoatrial node. So that's what breathing does. So as we exhale, it turns on the effects on the sinoatrial node. And when we inhale, it turns it off. And of course, people who lift weights or sprinters will use breathing with longer inspiration, short expiration. You call it pumping up. I don't know what the term would be now. But sprinters would, in, in a sense, trash talk. This goes back decades. Almost, almost like a hyperventilation yeah, type of breath. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's immobilizing. It's not mm-hmm. saying, hey, I love you. We're going to have a good, nice dance. So, But when we dance, we are going through a reciprocal set of interactions, mm-hmm. including breath. When we sing, we go through those. Uh, and even in team sports. So, again, the types of people that you work with, you have people who do individual work and people who are team. team teamwork in deal, deals with still listening to your teammates, making eye contact, and those are regula- physiological regulators. But when you deal with uh, individual sports, it's all about uh, primarily all about breath. Are there any other, uh, like maybe maybe two to three practices that, that our listeners could implement uh, into their daily lives that would help improve vagal tone and, and emotional resiliency? So I would actually give people a, a, a subjective test and ask whether they can deal with stillness. Is it frightening to them or is it something they want? Now, if you want stillness, then you have the ability to exhale slowly and and breathing exercises or meditation will work fine. But if stillness is frightening to you, uh, then those uh, exercises basically put you, uh, will make you feel very uncomfortable. So it provides this understanding of what you need for your body to feel comfortable. So I, I think that Breathing exercises are, are are powerful because breathing is both involuntary and voluntary and tightly linked to the vagal regulation. <clears throat> but everything that we're learning over the last couple of decades is that movement and exercise is just beneficial for the body. And part of it has to deal not just with the breathing, but also enhancing circulation. And this has a lot to do with Again, the interaction of the vagal functions with sympathetic nervous system. So we want to get the sympathetic nervous system mobilized, but we want to do it within a context of safety. Right. Okay. Um, so last line of questioning here uh, before we move into the close. What are your, I guess, how would you describe the way, and I think we've, we've touched on this, but not in the exact words, but the way that the, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the, it's the ventral vagal complex. Yeah. That's, that's the newer, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. that's like sort of the third evolution of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and that's the part that, that mammals, it's only in mammals, it has the faster myelinated nerves. That's the portion or, or, or sort of the part of that hierarchy that can help us um, override the limbic system, that lizard brain. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So then I I guess that's, I'm not really sure where my question is on that, but I I guess, so it's, you know, 
there are times where, you know, as you said, in, in a trauma situation that mm-hmm. the limbic system or the lizard brain may have the right answer. Um, yeah. And it's okay to listen to that. But then there are other times where, you know, maybe it doesn't have the right answer. Yeah. Can you give some well, examples of, of times where it might not? And, and well, it, what will happen again, uh, okay, people who suffer from life threat traumas, whether it's through medical procedures or through rape or through, uh, you know, some uncomfortable situation and where they, their body interpreted the setting as if they were going to die. Mm-hmm. So they went into, in a sense, a type of inanimate state. They, they disappeared. Uh, that issue is we have to understand that, and th- then we have to be able to bring people back from that. So the, f- the first point was to respect those, those reactions. Now, I actually lost the train, train of thought. <laughs> Go back to what you're so, so So there, like, I think that was just an example of how there are instances where the limbic system has the right answer. But I think, you know, outside of trauma, um, you know, in our daily lives as we go through the world. I I know where I want to go with that. Okay, okay. Okay. So the issue is, the problem is that once you get into that state, the body is now biased for seeing things negatively and dangerously. And the example that I really wanted to give was not the immediate reaction to the trauma, but to the consequences of that reaction. And these are the people who come into therapy and they come in and say, I'd love to have a relationship, but when someone touches me or gives me a hug, I want to die. I can't deal with it because their body takes the contact and the proximity as a threat. Mm -hmm. So the issue is when you retune it into this defense mode, you have now what I would call a faulty neuroception. So I was using the word neuroception because it's not the intention. It's, it's not, it's not a conscious thought. It's, it's a, it's a programmed system. Right. And it's programmed now on a very conservative way to be defensive. Mm -hmm. The metaphor I use, it's like a TSA agent at the airport who shifts the threshold and says, no one's getting on my plane. And so the point is, if you want to keep all the terrorists off, you don't let anyone on. And that's really what the body of a person who experiences trauma actually is doing. But the intentionality, the higher level mental processes of that individual says, I'd love to have a relationship. Right. But my body won't allow me because it's it's programmed now. So so that's that's sort of where my question was going is then okay, if, if you want to focus on somebody who's been in a trauma situation, how do, how do you progress them through the next stages? Or just somebody, it, the regular person who, mm-hmm. you know, maybe struggles to reach their goals or, or yeah. you know, doesn't realize that the, neg- that the negative narrative that they tell themselves is the reason that they're holding themselves back. I'm not exactly sure how to answer that. What you're really, in a sense, wanting a self-help uh, pathway. And the first thing is you need to ask another level question, and that is why is that uh, that narrative, which is holding them back, does serve a function. It may be a defining function of who they are. So th- this is the part. So I always translate everything into an academic world. Mm-hmm. So you have an academic world, which is in a sense defined by chronic evaluation. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's not a loving environment. It's evaluation. And that's how it's structured. Now, some people can't live without that because if they transition outward, 
they the boundaries of the evaluation and criticism enable them to live. But if they go outside the boundaries, so let's say they just start giving lectures and podcasts like this, uh, many of them say this is not important to me to do because it doesn't affect my evaluation, therefore it doesn't affect who I am. Other people, and this is where I try to bridge, start saying that the real uh, goal in life is to translate work into practice, to bring ideas into humanity. Yeah. And that requires uh, not a sense of constraint of, of the evaluation, but a boldness of, uh, of how ideas work and how society evolves. But, but the real issue that I would get back to is a lot of people have, have internal voices that are extraordinarily negative of themselves. They don't feel positive. And whether they exercise to compensate or they do other things, the real issue, I think, some of these people need to think about what are they gaining? And there are things they gain mm -hmm. from this negativity that they bathe themselves in. So whether it is greater productivity, uh, you know, the, the issue is you need, my view of life has been that we go through transitions and transitions uh, require us to take the feedback and to reframe who we are. This is just like an athlete. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you reframe the, what you can do and then you try to extend it. But you, over time, learn. So as a sprinter, I knew exactly I was not going to be world class. I was going to be okay. Uh, because you can win in high school, but you're not going to win in college. And if you can't win in college, just that's the, you know, that's it. And But we start learning, and the same thing occurs in music or other things, and it occurs in academics. So the issue is how far can we push the window, and when we hit the wall, how do we use that information to define or redefine us? And, and that requires an understanding of what our boundaries are. What are we comfortable with? It also requires a certain amount of emotional resiliency or, or vagal tone, right? To, to do that successfully. Or let me put it another way. Yes, and it requires the, the use of that vagal tone to enable those higher brain structures to uh, help us out. This is create personal narratives that are not self-defeating. So you can have real good vagal tone, but if you don't say, well, the vagal tone is also not only just allowing my heart to beat and regulate that and my viscera, but it's also providing opportunities for higher brain structures to come online. Yep. Yep. Exactly. All right. Dr. Porges, this has been uh, a blast for me. I hope you guys listening have enjoyed this as much as I have. Um, where can our listeners get more of you? Well, I have a webpage and the webpage is stephenporges.com. Uh, and there, there are um, actually materials on that. There's also a new book that just came out, which is, I will now say, if anyone read my initial book, The Polyvagal Theory, I would say that this book is readable. Um, it's called The Pocket Guide uh, for the, or to the poly, or for the Polyvagal Theory. But the second part of the title is really what it was supposed to be all about, and that is the uh, transformative power of feeling safe. And if the theory has anything, uh, useful. It's really those latter words that our quest in life as humans is really to feel safe. And as we live in this very complex world now, we can actually see things being acted out. And we have to really understand that the removal of threat 
is not sufficient to make humans feel safe. Humans need, in a sense, loving kindness. They need people to engage them, to listen to them, and to witness their experience. And polyvagal theory provides a neurophysiological model for that. You know, that's actually a note that I had written down. I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I wanted to highlight, you know, that I've heard you say that before, that that the removal of threat, you know, is not the same thing as turning off our, disp- our, our defense response. Well, it's... Well, it's more that, okay, that's part of it, but we have to put something else on top of it. Right. So we can, we can, in a sense, this is, so when you deal with people, some of them actually don't have the defenses on, but they don't have their safety system. They don't have the social mm-hmm. engagement system on either. So any slight movement, any noise in the room, any, any, anything, they'll, they'll, they'll trigger their defenses. But if they have that ventral vagal complex, which is not merely that inhibitory action, the vagus on the heart, but also includes the neuroregulation of the face uh, uh, and head. And that part becomes very critical because it means that we project our visceral state, our heart, in our face and in our voice. And this is very important because all of our bodies react to the intonation of other people's voices. So what we're really seeing in that interaction is the person's projecting their physiological state in their voice. All right. So we've got one final question for you. The question that every guest has to answer is we want to know your top three tips to live optimal. And I'm going to buy you about 30 seconds to think about it. And uh, while you think, I will remind our listeners that you guys can get the video version of this, the show notes, links to uh, Dr. Porges' website and the new book. Um, Anything that you may want to follow up on will be at naturalstacks.com on the blog post for this. Please go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review. Uh, I'm going to read you a very short segment of one from Wildberry. Absolutely outstanding five stars. I just want to say how much I truly appreciate this podcast. Uh, Ryan is so insightful and down to earth. Passion for truly helping others to live optimal is the real deal. Uh, There's a whole lot more. Uh, It's a big, long review. If you guys want to go check that one out, leave your own while you're there. We will hook you up with a little care package as a thank you. Wildberry, shoot me an email, ryan at naturalstacks.com. We will get you a care package to say thank you. And finally, share the OPP with the people in your life who you know will benefit from and enjoy the things that we're talking about here. Uh, I know this episode was packed with a lot of stuff that will help people, so make sure you share it with somebody in your life who you know will benefit from this. Dr. Porges, did I buy you enough time? You did, but you have to repeat the question again. <laughs> Your top three tips to okay. live optimal. Okay. The, uh, and I kind of went through these in different ways. So the first one, of course, is to understand breathing, which is uh, uh, our ability to access this powerful regulator of visceral state. And we can shift our visceral state by shifting our breathing pattern. And it's an interesting exercise to do, shifting the ratio of inspiration to expiration with a bias towards longer expiration. The second thing is a, a strange one that we really didn't uh, visit much today, and that is listening. So we talked about talking, breathing, but listening is also a neural exercise. And this, I actually developed an intervention, and you can uh, find out more about it 
on my webpage. Uh, it's been very effective with children who have uh, state regulation issues like autistic children and individuals who have auditory hypersensitivities. So if you're listening and you have some of those features, uh, whether it's state regulation or finding it difficult to process human speech in noisy environments, uh, you might find uh, that link of interest. But listening requires the neural regulation of another uniquely mammalian innovation. And those are detached middle ear bones. Very, I mean, if you found a fossil, you would find out that it was a mammal because detached middle ear bones were there. This is so critical to human evolution or the evolution of mammals because what it enabled, enabled mammals to communicate in an acoustic range that reptiles couldn't hear. So we hear in higher frequencies uh, and reptiles go through bone conduction. The example is you're walking on a path and there's a snake. Tell me the intonation of your voice when you identify the snake. It's gonna be high pitched. Monkeys do that, they, they squeal because the snake can't hear the low frequency sounds. So as we use melodic or prosodic voices, like a mother's lullaby, we are functionally exercising the neuroregulation of the milliar muscles. Now go back to the child being comforted by the mother, or even the young couple sitting together listening to romantic music. The music is enabling their bodies to feel safe enough to be in closer proximity. Uh, that's part of what we want. We want the voice of leaders to have prosody in their voices so that we feel safe with them. And our nervous system is craving this. I actually had a metaphor, and it had to do with, again, my, my decade of coming of age, and that is our nervous system is waiting for Johnny Mathis. Now, the older people online will know what I mean by that, but that was the music that uh, adolescents and young couples would put on when they wanted to be physically closer to each other. And when I mentioned this uh, in workshops, and I normally ask a what I would say an age-appropriate woman to tell me what she remembers about Johnny Mathis, you'll see blushes. So the issue is uh, uh, it enabled Johnny Mathis had a very melodic tenor voice, and this enabled people to feel safe and and, and touch each other. And the last one is really something that we forget. We forget that through trust, trusting people and having social interactions with others, even through Zoom or Skype like we are, mm -hmm. we're having a face-to-face -face interaction where we're, in a sense, picking up on each other's gestures of facial expressivity. We, with a phone, we pick up voice. But in social interactions, true physical social interactions, we're picking up a lot of micro features that our body reacts to and that helps us calm down and i bring this up because in the world we're in now is that people are communicating with things like this and i basically will ask the basic question when you text someone how long does your nervous system stay regulated in expectation of a return text how many minutes can you handle so it's like Functionally, what you're doing is saying hello to someone and they're turning their head and walking away. And everyone's physiology will be disrupted by that. But now we basically put ourselves at risk when we go into the social media world because our bodies require a proximity of time for the reciprocity. A we need to be more synchronous. So the bottom line here is for optimized experience, which whether we're talking about physical uh, movement or music or arts or any even science, 
we need to have a connectedness to help our bodies co-regulate. Because the bottom line on all this is that we, as mammals, did not evolve to be by ourselves. We could do an entire episode on uh, social media best practices for, for yeah. HRV and, and vagal tone. That would be fun. Yeah. Um, wow. This has been great. Dr. Porges, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us and, and sharing your knowledge today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a very enjoyable hour.